this was an experiment about whether Hispanics are, in fact, moving to the Republican Party, and we found out they are. They're not woke, but they are broke, and they're pissed, and they're coming Republicans' way. It's happening. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. The gang is back and in the same room together. This is the roundtable version of Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm your host, Joe Arnold. Jared Crawford behind the board. Scott is here. Kevin Grout, Sean Southerd. Excited to see you guys. This is wonderful. Hey, Joe. Good to see you. Thank you. It has been too long, Joe, since we have seen you in person. In person. In fact, I was uh, in, in last week's episode of Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I was I was laid up on the sofa enjoying the air conditioning with a a slight bout of coronavirus. <laughs> you had, <laughs> you know, I had gone. Which, by the way, makes you a bad person. I was reliably told that if you contract coronavirus, it makes you okay, immoral. A pandemic of the. I got to tell you something. Have you bad. gone to confession? And I said, come from Anthony, a certain please. generation or mindset of if you get sick, it is a moral failing. And <laughs> I, I know, no, I, I've always felt that way. I've never wanted to admit that I sleep or that I get ill ever. Okay, boomer. Okay, no, I'm not a boomer, but I'm close to it. But that is part of it. That, and I, I will tell you that there was a. In addition to just wanting protecting my my coworkers and and uh, friends and family, there was a, a a portion of my emotions with this that I had failed, hmm. that I had failed. So why do you believe that? Self-flagellating you know to now overcome a virus. It doesn't matter what you do. I understand that, but at the same time, I was kind of a, a point of pride that everyone else had kind of gone through all this, and I, I had not. Hmm. Now that said, you did have it though. This is the second time you've had it. See, my, <laughs> I'm glad that this disease has, you know, stripped you of any moral authority you had over the rest now, of us. I don't know why I'm burying my soul like that, but, but that's it. But Scott, you and I, hour. the reason why we knew this, though, and I wasn't st- still confident of this, but you and I gave blood a month and a half ago or so, and yeah. and in that, uh, it, it it showed up on the Red Cross app that we yeah. both had this. We had the antibodies. The reactive, like yeah. a reactive plus. It was like you have the strongest ability. It's like Disney Plus, but, <laughs> but different. <laughs> we had COVID plus, you know. Ooh. Not, so I, not as good as streaming. I thought I had a Hulu. See, so that was the whole <laughs> the, the lesser version that was not yeah. premium. So you've now had COVID twice. I sort of expect you to get it every other week now. Now that I know you get it all Let me the shake time. your hand. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but uh, but glad to be back, and it really is good to see you guys. But, but whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. This is yeah. instructive. Yes. You are vaccinated. And boosted. You were boosted. You had it once. You got it twice. I think you should, for our listeners, wh- what were your symptoms on the second round here? I um, had a headache and just took some ibuprofen and maybe, a, I mean, retrospectively, and they said, well, did you have a fever? I'm like, I don't think so, but maybe I did because it was you, so short. You did, you you did take, seem irritable. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. That's, that's every day. What? Did you take Paxlovid? Okay, I did. So I, I I called my doctor and and after reading for the last you know two and a half years whatever it is about the different things of, of possible and you know I remember Rand Paul telling us about monoclonal uh, antibodies. That's yeah. a whole different kind of of uh, more aggressive way to treat and and to avoid serious illness. I called my primary care physician and I said, okay, I have this diagnosis. I took the positive test last night. I'm within this window. That apparently with the, like with up to five days after you've like the onset is when you should take Paxlovid, mm-hmm. and it would help presumably or ostensibly to um, it, it prevents the, the the worst outcomes. 
He looked at my chart, knows about my health history, whatever else. Says Joe, he said, "I don't think you're any danger anyway. I think you're fine." He said, "But if if you really want to take Paxlovid, I'll prescribe it to you." I said, "Sure, why not?" I, I, to me, because I, you know, I want to do everything. I don't want to look back later on and say I didn't do everything that I should have done to to uh, prevent serious illness. Even though doing everything that you should have done leading up to that point didn't help you. So well, here, here, listen. I do. I Sean's Sean's attacks on you aside. Here's yeah. what I'm getting at. Yes. <laughs> here's what I'm getting at. You did everything you were supposed to do, as Sean just said. You took the drugs that you were supposed to take. You mm-hmm. had pretty mild symptoms. Yep. Here's the core policy question. This is, Anthony Fauci has it. He's got apparently pretty mild symptoms. But he's. When are we actually going to start treating this in a way that isn't a throwback to the moment? To the, to the time when we were trying to get to COVID zero. Right. Because right now, when someone gets like, we still act like, oh, if we just isolate Joe, right. no one else will ever get COVID. <laughs> That's not true. It's also not true that the vaccine prevents you from getting it. It certainly prevents you from having serious illness and mostly prevents you from dying. That's absolutely true. That, that's, but that's the core political question and policy question is, when are we just going to treat this like a treatable item and get on about our lives? And I would have felt better about even being here right now in person with all of you. <laughs> that uh, Man. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I, I agree with you. And I think that as, in the same way as I'm responsible when it comes to if I'm feeling, you know, peak at ever and, and, and don't have and, and, and maybe suspect that I might be coming down with the flu or something, I'm going to stay away from work. I'm going to be careful around my family and, and friends. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I think I generally, you know, self isolate, if you will. Not because that could be my lack of friends, but I self isolate anyway in terms of some of these things. And, but that's just what we do throughout our lives. We wash our hands. We're careful around. We cough into our elbow. You know, those kind of things. Jared and I were having this conversation earlier today. When are we going to get to the point where it's we no longer get a press release when some public figure we, gets COVID? We should. Well, you're exactly right. Why am I seeing tweets that the HHS secretary has gotten it a second time or that right. Anthony Fauci, they're sick. Stay home. Do your work from home and just get back with it. The people running the government are still clinging to this COVID zero right. deal. I mean, that, that's the, most of our policies are still geared and aimed at that idea that came out on day one. If we just take two weeks here to slow the spread, you know, we're, we're not going to have COVID zero. What we do have is COVID manageable. And if and the vaccine's available, Paxlovid's available, we have the tools we need to manage this. And yet the policies haven't caught up yet. I know this is hashtag first world problems, but Scott and I were uh, are in our families uh, on a great Alaskan cruise uh, two weeks ago or so. But the reason I bring this up is that the return to the U.S. was arduous. And because you, I, we, we all tested negative, because at that point, now the policy has since changed, like within the last week. Thank goodness. You know, yeah. right? But the, yeah. but the uh, but you had to test negative in order to be able to get on a flight to return to the U.S., even though you did not have to test negative if you were crossing the border on foot, you know, or, or basically or driving over the border. I almost <laughs> crossed on foot. Yeah. <laughs> I almost just hiked across the Canadian-American border. You know, you would actually, to, to your credit, because we, we went on several hikes. When we, we did. Were in Alaska. <laughs> Scott was just like, drop me in the ocean. I'll swim. I'll, I'll swim across. No, but the point being... <laughs> The, 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 the this hoops, is why we need border security. The folks. hoops you had to go through, though, at that time, in yeah. terms of trying to get these tests. And, of course, and that's all a joke. 
because these are, there are proctored tests. So there's these companies that make this money by outsourcing these people to watch you on a FaceTime call, <laughs> stick a swab up your nose, and there's no. I mean, it by is the way, just it's a Chinese, it's a Chinese made test. That's the greatest Chinese, insult. Yeah. So you yeah, buy a Chinese amazing. made test. Yes. Get on a video conference with someone. Yeah. Someone then the affirms that you don't. It's just the that, biggest freaking scam. Sir, scan sir of you all need time. to you need to go up your nose just a little bit more. Yeah. Just a little bit more. It's insane. It was just a bit. Of course, you you go through this dog and pony show for the sake of being able to return to your country. So we, we did that, but it was it was painful. And then the minute we got back, they they finally changed the policy. They did. No, but to your point, though, Scott, and we'll talk about this, and then we'll get to the midterms and some of the takeaways from Tuesday night's primary. But I have been wondering uh, about, you know, here we have this policy that we just mentioned when, and Sean was uh, endorsing that we've re- removed this, this, uh, this, this negative test before to, to get back into the U.S. on a flight. But other policies, though, as these COVID infections continue with Anthony Fauci, for instance, and as we're seeing some of the, the heat map from the CDC coming out and you're seeing certain pockets of the country, you're already seeing calls to shut down cities again. And we, I asked about this in the last time we were in person here about, you know, will this change elections again? And so the question is, we are at a tipping point. You have to decide, are we going to just basically get used to this and as part of life? Or are we going to make this decision now to say we're going to shut things back down again? Well, I'm interested in what, what you guys think. But my view is most Americans just want to get used to it, manage it, and, and move on with life. But there is a dedicated COVID you know, cult out there that would love to shut America down and run on emergency powers for the rest of their lives. I mean, it, there's a dedicated group out there. And unfortunately, they're in charge of the government right now. And so... I think it's th- this this attitude is going to be to some degree debated in the election. Right, but there's among especially in flyover country no appetite for that. None. Among the rank and file. And I think if if the Democrats want to try those policies again, God bless them. Let them try and see what happens in November. Yeah, I think I, I agree with Kevin. I think that there's no appetite in flyover country for that, but I also believe that there's probably no appetite in most of like what I would call real America, real world America where people are like taking their kids to daycare and that every single time a daycare has to shut down because you know this is now a treatable treatable infection i just think that this is people are done with this especially now because it was announced today that they're expecting next week um to open up the vaccines to kids from six months to five years that'll be like the last major segment of the population that's unvaccinated uh once those kids can get fully vaccinated there's no argument for a shutdown the, uh, the the other uh, element to this, which is interesting as far as showing how people are responding, and, and we have talked about this before as far as anytime you, you affect uh, someone's children, you're going to cut through a lot of partisanship and get to the point of, I'm going to protect my kids regardless of whatever label I have next to anyone's name. But what you're seeing a lot more of across the country, including in here in Kentucky where we're uh, podcasting from at 830 on a June 15th, is uh, a lot more candidates and people lining up from the citizenry to run for school boards. You're seeing a lot of just people saying, this is enough, I've had enough. I mean, I, we trusted the usual suspects to be in those positions because they're, you know, they're, they're education-minded and they've studied all this kind of stuff. You're seeing rank-and-file parents now lining up to say, I'm going to stake my claim here. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of activism at, at, at very local levels of government at the moment, and it's a good thing. I mean, that's, what, that's why these things are elected, for people to participate. And there's a lot of offices in this country that get, you know, little attention or little participation, but uh, school boards and, and other local offices are attracting attention from, from local folks, and 
that's what that's the way it was intended. And uh, and so high, high political engagement. Good for America. Could you imagine being a parent going to a school board meeting, being called a domestic terrorist by Crazy. the people on the dais? Yeah, I think I'd run for that, too, and kick those yahoos out of office. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, because, you know, the Democrats for years have been urging, you know, people need to get more involved in local elections. You know, we need more turnout. We need more people to run for office and that sort of thing. And now, all of a sudden, they're very upset about that. And so I, I think that this is good. I've been very consistent on this issue personally, that it's good for local citizens to be engaged with local government. And so I think it's a great trend. I think some people are scared, though, of that. I think some people are scared when people show up and actually want to speak at a meeting or want to have an opinion. Or have a question. Right. Why do you do this this way? Who made this decision? Why are you anti-education? Yeah. And this is the response. But, but, God but, forbid somebody have to answer a question about something. But right? that, but that's how, but, but, but from the federal level on down, you have these entrenched sort of government progressives who, who believe I'm smart and you're stupid. Right. And, who do you and think you, you are? Who, yes, this is my domain, and stay in your lane. I mean, this is how Fauci has operated. He believes he's a federal bureaucrat. He's not elected. You know, he's not confirmed by this. He is a federal bureaucrat. And yet, he is so disdainful every time the U.S. Congress asks him a question. As if he doesn't work for them. He works for them. He works for us. And so, but you get that attitude at all these levels of government, and it pisses people off. It's not only U.S. Congress. He doesn't like the other branch of government either. He, that's right. That's he, right. He thinks that that his decisions should be insulated from all other branches of government. No other input. He should be able to operate alone. Legal considerations matter not. Political considerations matter not. Implications on our economy matter not. I am the science, and therefore, I. It's it's corrosive and 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 uh, I suspect what he'll do. I don't know anything. My suspicion is once the Republicans take over here, he's going to fade away and retire and go make his movie. But I talked to Jamie Comer, first district Kentucky congressman, next chairman of the House Oversight Committee. I don't think retiring is going to get him <laughs> off the hook. There there will be oversight of the way he's run this regime. So several factors, including of course this is one big one. We knew about this in, in Glenn Youngkin's victory in Virginia. And among other political, uh, you know, uh, reverberations from the pandemic shutdowns and American, uh, the, the U.S. policies toward that, that's that's one factor that was always already going into the midterms a long time ago. Then inflation got worse and worse and worse. Now the stock market has gotten falling more into a bear market now. Now you have uh, all these different factors going on. You have, of course, you know, on top of inflation per se, and as far as all, all prices, it's just the energy policy and, and, and gas and where we are with, with, with those costs. The other factor that everyone's talking about, Scott, is, is Trump and January 6th and what's happening on uh, the primary ballot and who aligns themselves with Trump versus separates themselves from him and what their record is. So there's a lot of different factors going in there. So I'll start with you, but then of course it's a round table. What are the factors that are going to, that we're seeing now are determining the outcome of the midterm elections and on these primaries. I'm going to start with the one that's not a factor, and it's Trump. Democrats are desperate to put Trump at the center of this election, and voters are putting inflation and economic concerns at the center of the election. It won't matter about these hearings. It won't matter what Democrats do to drag Trump into all these It won't matter because he's not on the ballot. He's not running. He's not the president. They're going to deal with him later. 2024, if he runs, they'll deal with him later. They'll figure that out later. Today, the election is about economic conditions and who's running Washington, D.C. It's Democrats. It's Joe Biden. That's what this election is about. And and no attempts to change the subject, no attempts to distract people. If gas is $6 a gallon and Joe Biden is at 38% job approval come November, I mean, Katie, bar the door. <laughs> 
Right. And I, you, you brought up Governor Yunkin in Virginia. That's a perfect example of it. Terry McAuliffe, his opponent, tried to make the entire race about Trump, and he flopped. And a, a state that went for Biden for 10 points elected a Republican governor. Uh, and I, I also saw today that Glenn Youngkin got to announce the first domestic Lego factory in, uh, I think, ever. Over a billion dollars coming into his state. 1,700 jobs. That's right, like to make huge. Legos in Virginia. Do you know how much those things cost? <laughs> I do. I have four children. <laughs> they cost like a. They cost a lot. They're doing fine. Let me tell you, Lego's doing fine. I'm Thanks. glad they're building a factory here. How old are your kids? Uh, he's uh, almost three. Okay, your, your son, okay. Yeah. Have you already uh, stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night? God, no. But I have a pair of hard sole slippers just because I'm, saying, I'm ready. It is. Have you done this? Legos, by the way, are more complicated now than when I was right. growing up. But these are like models now. Like, they're very right. complicated models. When I was growing up, it was like, here's a box of mismatched Legos. Figure something out. Now, right. it's like a complicated algorithm. You gotta, and right. my kids just sit there and whip these things together based on... it's. I mean, they're learning how to follow Have you stepped on them, though, in the middle of the night? Yeah, I, dude, my entire floor... You've been to my house. My entire floor <laughs> is covered with Legos there's, there's and no every carpet. other toy. There's no carpet. Just instead of hardwood or it's carpet, just Lego. it's just a floor made <laughs> of Legos. Just Lego, like one, one broken Cheetos... <laughs> Uh, and other what I, you know the entire second wing of his house is just constructed out of Legos. <laughs> but I derailed your Glenn Youngkin point. In other words, you're saying there's some economic development. Yeah, going on in Virginia. it's huge. It's gonna be great. You know, uh, as a secondary matter, not only did McAuliffe in that race try to make the whole thing about uh, Trump, but they also wrapped in abortion. I mean, yeah, they tried right. to, and and what's going to happen? We're going to get the Dobbs decision pretty soon, probably. And uh, and if it goes the way the draft d- opinion that leaked out goes, then. Democrats again are going to say, "Well, there, here we go. This election's all about abortion. It's, it's it, they're like replaying Yunkin again, and it's not going to work." Well, bear in mind, it won't just be about abortion at that point. It will be about same-sex marriage. It'll be about interracial marriage. Nobody It'll, believes that. I well, but it doesn't matter if they don't believe it or not. I'm saying is they're they're still going to make it a, a, a point, aren't they? Yes, but but my point is it's going to fail. It's going to be mean, as successful as saying that this is about all about Donald Trump. I don't, I don't think people are going to think that. They do not look at the opinion. They're gonna be like hmm. the 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 ads and the 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 stump speeches will mention that they're they're gonna say this well, right is now the Democrats handmaid's tale and we're gonna go back to you right, know nineteen forty five right now the Democrats are spending a lot of money in Republican primaries Joe to elevate <laughs> candidates not spending any sort of time spend, thinking about any sort of messaging on the November election this, this issue by the way can we just detour to the, for the you you just brought up an interesting issue <clears throat> I talked to Josh Krauschauer today I did his. By the way, Josh, friend of the pod, his last ever Against the Grain oh, podcast that's right. He's is with you. Is with me. We taped it today. Oh man, he's now moving to Axios. So we'll post it on. That's the feed. a big get for Axios. Uh, I thought it was a big get for him to get me as the last guest on his. Anyway. Also very true. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Anyway, we talked about this today, but Sean, you raised a great point. Democrats right now simultaneously are arguing that our democracy is hanging by a thread. That People who support the big lie shouldn't have any space, any room to be a part of our national political affairs. Yet, what are they doing? They're taking their donors' money and spending it on these these people that believe that in the quote-unquote big lie. They're the trying Trump to candidates. get them. They, they are meddling in Republican primaries around the country trying to get nominations for the very people that they say are destroying American democracy. Now, you tell me... It, does this not hollow out every single thing we've heard from these people since Donald Trump came on the stage? Of course it does. Wouldn't there be a lesson learned from the 2016 presidential race when the Democrats and Hillary Clinton propped up Donald Trump? Yeah, prayed for it. I mean, seriously, <laughs> right. Joe, Joe yeah. do you, do people have such a short memory. 
that was not that long ago. That that was that was like three decades ago for these people. They <laughs> that that might have been an instance that worked badly for them, but it has worked well. I mean, there there are a number of Senate races where they've gotten a crazy candidate, crazy Republican candidate that's backed by Democratic donors past the primary and then they ended up winning that seat the list is long so you know it's it's great that we're but, talking but, about but it that because that was before this this apocalyptic language right. about the destruction of america i'm not democracy. saying it's it's a an ethical play but what i'm saying is it's a potent play and republicans need to be on guard ag- uh, against it i'm just saying I, like if they they just believe that, you know they say that they go to the wall on tv on radio every single day saying that this is the greatest threat to american democracy but yet they're going to take your your campaign donations and they're going to steer it towards these people. I mean, it, it just it's beyond the pale. Amen. It hollows it's inauthentic. out. It hollows out everything they've said about Trump, everything they've said about everything they say about these hearings. You've got these hearings going on right now. The January 6 hearings and at the same time, the institutional democratic money is being steered toward election deniers in races across the country. It this is this is why no one trusts this party right one of the reasons no one trusts the democratic party right now this is hypocrisy at its not finest at its worst back to the uh post-mortem on the tuesday primaries uh just this is one night ago as we we're recording this a lot of different things happened you had in nevada you had a uh, a, a trump-backed uh, senate candidate uh, adam lexalt uh, win the primary there you had a uh, a big Trump critic, Tom Rice, a congressman, losing the, in a primary in South Carolina. Nancy Mace kind of played both sides there. She didn't have Trump's endorsement, but she kind of warmed to try to make it clear that she was not anti-Trump during the primary. And then, of course, you have the situation with the uh, the first Mexican-born Congress member of Congress, Congresswoman, uh, winning the uh, primary, or winning the special election in the Rio Grande Valley. What what's your t- takeaway of all these? Sure, I'll just go on the same tour you did. Well, you left out in Nevada. He was a Trump back candidate, but he's also a McConnell back candidate. So this was one of those primaries where you had every corner of the Republican Party behind Laxalt, and he's the correct nominee. And and I, I actually think Nevada has gone to the top of my Senate rankings as the most flippable seat. So that, that's mm. I, I think b- between getting Laxalt as the nominee and then seeing the movement of Hispanic voters in Texas 34, it tells me that is real. It's not just a polling sort of experiment. This is not esoteric. It's real now. And so if you're running for Senate in Nevada, Arizona, Colorado, I mean, this is this is a real thing. So that's number one. Number two, in South Carolina, Rice was interesting because he did vote to impeach Trump, but he also voted to, to not accept the Electoral College either. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he was pissing everybody off. Like, he literally <laughs> found, I mean, it was a strange hodgepodge of votes. And so it was always portrayed that he was like an impeachment voter, but yes, he also voted to not, not accept the Electoral College. So, strange. The guy who beat him, by the way, uh, Fry, right, uh, uh, was a leader in the legislature down there. Good candidate. I mean, candidate quality in that case played a role. Nancy Mace, God bless Nancy Mace. She stood up to this onslaught and won a nice election there. She's a leader. She's got a great story. I love Nancy Mace. I, I'm so glad she won, and that was good for the party. Her her transgressions against Trump are more rhetorical. Mm-hmm. Rice just cast the votes that that got both sides of that whole you know debate uh, uh, angry with him and and got beat by frankly a better candidate. So I didn't read a ton into that. The most monumental thing, Texas 34. 85% Hispanic district, Democrats stayed home, and the, the people who turned out uh, had voted for Obama, they had voted for Clinton, they had voted for Biden, and they voted Republican. 
in this election. I don't know that we're going to hold that seat in November because of the, the new lines for redistricting, but it's irrelevant. This was an experiment about whether Hispanics are, in fact, moving to the Republican Party, and we found out they are. They're not woke, but they are broke, and they're pissed, <laughs> and they're coming Republicans' way. Lord. It's happening. It's it, Listen, this is a, the, the new theme song of Flyover Country. I can hear the <laughs> rap right now. Say it again. They're not woke, yes. but they are broke. Uh-huh. I think Scott raises a really good point. I mean, he raises a lot of great points. Just, <laughs> ask, just ask him; he'll tell you. Concur. Uh, also but, concur. But I think that the candidate in these all these races matters. We talked about it in Georgia mm-hmm. with Purdue versus Kemp. We're talking about it now. And when the stars align, where Trump endorses a candidate who's a good candidate, and McConnell endorses a candidate that's a good candidate, that candidate ends up winning. But it's it's more of a an indicator of whether or not the candidate is actually a good candidate, not so much of the star power of an endorsement coming in from you know Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump or any one person. It's can the candidate actually connect with the voters and actually deliver a message that resonates with them at any given moment. And we're going to see how that plays out in Alabama. And that Senate runoff now, Katie Britt versus Mo Brooks. Trump finally came in for Katie Britt. Who McConnell is involved in supporting. Isn't, hasn't Trump just basically become sort of like the person who's sitting there on Derby Day or at the racetrack and saying, who do I think is going to win and I'm on that I'm like, I can take credit for it? I think in some cases that might be true, but in some cases he, I mean, like in the Mace-Arrington race, it was pretty obvious that Mace was the favorite, but he went all in for Arrington and he and he, he took it on the chin and then he begrudgingly congratulated me. I feel like Joe is quoting Mo Brooks's talking points because that's exactly <laughs> what Mo Brooks said today. Mo, right? Mo Brooks said, it looks like Donald Trump is just choosing whichever candidate that he wants to win because his brand, he only cares about winning. That's what I he think. He doesn't actually I, I, care about I think about overall, I think he's going out and he's trying to... It's why he I'm not to, saying it, I agree but with him, I mean, it, In Kentucky, where he went and, well, and endorsed what, 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 Thomas Massey. What's wrong with that? I mean, look, he's thinking of running yeah. for... If you were Put yourself in his shoes. I'm thinking of running for president again. Part of my brand is I'm the Republican kingmaker. And by the way... He wants to build up yeah. some chits among people who are going to be there for his own election. So Absolutely. people have like sort of like make fun of him for this. Or if I were in his shoes, I'd do the same thing. And I think what we saw in Pennsylvania is he did have a little bit of sway there. That was a, a tight race. That I mean, I, I think Oz. he probably helped bring Doctor Oz over the finish Ohio. Line. JD Vance. in Ohio too. I mean, right. he has had a measurable impact. It doesn't always work out for him, but in most cases, it has. Yeah. You know, I mentioned is one of the many factors that, that folks are talking about, not, maybe not as much in the primary, but certainly in the general. Uh, we have the January 6th hearings going on with this 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 made-for-TV. Apparently, it's going to be like a miniseries because it's going on for, for six, seven weeks. Well, they keep canceling episodes, so I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. But the uh, the, the the sense, what, I, what you hear from the pundits, from, from your colleagues on the cable networks, uh, the talkers, Scott, is that the suburbans, the people in this in suburbia, will be swayed by this, and, and this will make the difference, and this will be a factor. I mean, we we talked about it at the top of the show. I mean, I I think some people are paying attention to this. This is not what these midterms are about. People are going to deal with this topic when the presidential campaign happens in twenty twenty four. Right now, they got to deal with six dollar gas and everything else that's going on in the country. So, <clears throat> I looked at some of the ratings. I think the first hearing got twenty million viewers. Eighty million people voted for Joe Biden. I mean, look, I I think if you're one of the hardest core anti-Trump people, you watched it. I have no doubt about that. But is this breaking through to change the dynamics of this election cycle? No. 
And I'd argue that those white suburban moms that you're talking about who, who might be swayed are probably, when they're looking at D.C., they're more looking at the gun legislation and the school safety bill that's going through Congress. I think that's that's where their mind is a little more. And I think they're going to see a, a positive outcome, a positive bipartisan outcome there. There's, there's not a ton of mystery, by the way, about what happened here. It's all happened live on our televisions. And people formed opinions about it, whether you think it was terrible or whether you think it was no big deal. People formed opinions. Because we all saw it, and, and there was, I mean, it happened in real time in front of our eyes. And so it just doesn't strike me that there's that much more to learn. There's little juicy nuggets and little details here and there, but there's not that much more to learn. But it's kind of inside parlor game stuff at this point. Like Who texted who? Yeah, I mean, who said what? In what room? Did they use a candlestick? You know, I mean, it, it, we, we, all, we all, again, we all know what happened. We saw it. We saw it. I guess this, the, the ones coming up here will be interesting from a Republican uh, standpoint and looking ahead to 2024 in that uh, Mike Pence is going to be this, the topic. Mm-hmm. And and the degree to which people may have to choose a lane, you know, when it comes to Trump versus Pence at that point? Well, I mean, Pence is obviously running, and he's he's got but one choice here, and that is to say... Uh, I'm, I'm everything you loved about Donald Trump except January the 6th. I mean, that's his message. That's also going to be the message of Chris Christie, who I suspect is running, and, right. and perhaps some others. And so we'll see if it works. I, I don't know. I mean, it strikes me that DeSantis is slightly ahead of Pence in the non-Trump candidate derby at the moment, but there's still a lot of room to, a lot of runway left in that one. One of you mentioned the uh, gun legislation, and, and I, after, of course, recent tragedies in Texas and, and New York, uh, has, has found a, a, a newfound uh, you know, head of steam in terms of getting some things accomplished. And Scott, I know that you were on, on Capitol Hill this past week and had some conversations uh, with some folks there. And, and I think you made some news, frankly, while I was watching you on CNN uh, the other night. Uh, and you, I think you surprised your, your fellow panelists when you intimated that not only would, there, would there be maybe 10 Republican senators who would be able to coalesce around a framework and on, on some gun legislation to one degree or another, but it could be anywhere between 10 and 20. Yeah. That's a big number, especially for something as third rail as quote-unquote gun control. Where do you, where, why do you think that, and, and where do you, how do you, how does all, all this fit in politically? Well, I think a couple things. Number one, you, you can kind of pick out who couldn't vote for this politically. If you're in a primary right now, if you represent a, a rural western state, or if you're thinking of running for president, you probably don't want to touch it. So you can... And then you get down to the, the rest of the conference, uh, and for various reasons, you can see why certain people would support it. I, I think about it the way I thought about the infrastructure bill. It got, they didn't have getting like 17, 17 Republicans, so that's in that, that same zone. You already see 10 signed on to the framework. McConnell has signaled his interest in voting for it. That's 11, so I'm not that far away. <laughs> and of course, and for folks, just to remind us, why is 10 a magic number? It, for, to break a filibuster. There are 50 Democrats who all will presumably vote for it. Add 10 Republicans in, and then you've got a floor vote, and, and it'll pass. I think that the reason that uh, Republicans are going to end up voting for this is because for a long time after these events, we've always said as a party that it's mental health. This is a mental health issue. We shouldn't be banning guns. We shouldn't be, it's not the guns, it's the people. And this bill, I mean, the Democrats immediately said, we'll take anything we can get. So they sort of let the Republicans write right. this thing. And so, for that reason, it's not really gun control. It's criminal control. It's people control. And if I were a Republican who were going to vote, that's how I'd explain it. This is a this is a this is a triumph for people who want to protect the Second Amendment from bad actors. That's that to me. That is the the messaging here. We're going to protect the Second Amendment 
from bad actors, the people like the Uvalde shooter, the people like the Buffalo. We're going to protect the Second Amendment, and we're going to protect it from Democrats who always want to ban guns, who always want to confiscate guns, who always want to infringe upon the Second Amendment. We're protecting it from those folks as well. So I, I, I actually think it's, it's going to pass. I know they still haven't written the legislation yet. I know that you know there's still devil still in the details, and we, we still have some. But but to me, th- there's no gun control here. It's people control. It's criminal control, and and it's a protection of our constitutional rights to keep and bear arms. And so, this is a one of those rare moments where the Rubik's cube dials have lined up for both parties at the exact right time. Republicans on mental health, Democrats will take anything, and uh, and both parties have an incentive to move. I, I think you're right. They they have an incentive to show that something is getting done. And Republicans have been complaining and arguing that we need to do more to address these huge crime rates. I mean, here in the city of Louisville, we're seeing more and more crime. I mean, there was another mass shooting in a place I took my kid over the weekend. Uh, it was a, a real problem. So I think, Scott, you framed it up just right. This is criminal control. The one thing this doesn't address, but I hope some Republicans talk about, though, is if, if you're worried about shootings and you're worried about gun violence in this country, you ought to be worried about the fact that most murders in this country are committed by people who have committed five, six, seven violent acts. They're, these are repeat offenders who, for some reason, find themselves out on the streets, and then they commit a murder, and we're and we're then we get worried about it. But why were they out on the streets in the first place? Th- th- this, to me, is bringing to a screeching halt this idea that if we just, you know, let people go and we just let violent people go and say, okay, we've given you a second chance here, get your life together. Most of them don't. It's not a second chance. It's more like a fourth, fifth, sixth chance. I mean, something like 80-plus percent of the murders in this country are committed by people who are repeat violent offenders, and then they become murderers. Mass shootings are not the norm. The normal murder in this country is committed by someone who is a repeat violent person, and we need to we need to grapple with the criminal justice policies that have let these people stay on the streets. It's a topic for a different podcast or a different conversation, but it also is trending younger and younger, where juvenile offenders are driving a lot of this as well. And that's a whole other level of criminal justice complications when you have somebody who's under the age of 18. But that's a whole well, other story. And young people are being recruited by it. That's know, right. Especially here in Louisville by right. a, lot of, a lot of gangs to, to commit this violence because they know that the sentencing guidelines and, and, and it, it all it's, together. It's, it's very different. And so I know that there's been talk here in Kentucky even on some of these these points. But, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on this. And uh, people need to people need, we need to take a hard look at it. One thing that always frustrates me when I hear conversations about the Second Amendment and or and is the, the concept that when I hear like on some of the, the cable talk shows, Scott, is people talking about, well, how can we allow people to do this? And I, and I keep wondering about our constitutional bona fides. Are, do you understand is that we're not, it's not that we're allowing anything. The Constitution protects God-given rights. Well, you see, Joe, Joe, <laughs> hang with me here. Okay, I'm right here. They don't understand the Constitution. What? <laughs> is that true? You're going to no. go out on a limb. I'm just going to go out on a limb. It might break under. Me. But I, I guess what I'm saying is at some point, I or, just want, I want or Scott. Wait, or wait, they understand it. They, they say, just want to disregard Joe Biden, it. Joe Biden this week said, no amendment to the Constitution is absolute. Now, that would shock a lot of people who, you know, love the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery in this country. Or who love to be able to wake up in the morning and say whatever they want. Or say, you know, hey, you know, no U.S. troops can come into my home. Yeah. You know, I mean, okay, maybe I'm stating the obvious for the panel that assembled in front of us. What I'm saying is, it, there does seem to be a huge disconnect about what the Constitution is 
And what, in other words, the Constitution is different than a law. I mean, you understand that. You understand that. You understand that. But, but okay. But this but, is the moment Joe Arnold became president. <laughs> this is when he's going to fire off a Moab here. <laughs> Maybe I'm being simplistic for you, but I'm saying, but I want you, Scott. The same way as the Casey Hunt is pointing her finger at you and saying, <laughs> I want you to stop Donald Trump, I want you to stand up on the set of CNN and say the Constitution is not just another law. We're going to get you a sandwich board, Scott, to wear yeah. on you CNN do that? that's just a printout of the Constitution. Yeah, on one side you can wear whatever Casey Hunt wants you to say, and the other side can be whatever I want you to say, okay? But, but you make an excellent point, Joe. Thank I know you. We're, I know we're having a little fun at your expense right now, but you make an excellent point. This is a, this, this is a declaration of our rights not a declaration of what we'll allow you to do if we feel like it. And 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 it, it is the Second Amendment for a reason. Powers are derived from whom? Not from the government, but from God. And from the people. From the people. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, that's the... Good point. Yes. Good point. Yeah. I, well, there's another amendment. amendment. Well said. That's the Tenth Amendment. <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, so, we, we covered that. Let me ask you about, back to the other factors going into the election, and just what... I don't know. We're not going to be able to, you know, uh, explain away or talk about inflation and re- the, the, the prospects of recession overall. But just your your all of your reaction here this week, because the stock market obviously we're, we're dangerously close to now dipping below that thirty thousand mark. I think that will be emotionally and, and psychologically, uh, you know, telling at that point. The Fed, of course, raising rates today to try to stem off some of this. Where is this as a country? Where where are we are polit- politically on this? Well, as a, as a political matter, I mean, the, the real and, and, and daily impact of this entire economic situation is when you go to the gas station or when you go to the grocery store. I mean, think about just the conversations you're having, you know, just with random people in your life. What's the first thing they say? Man, you've been in the, been in the store lately? I mean, it's, it's all anyone is talking about. So just as a, as a contextual matter for running an election... You know, if you're the if you're the party in power, and that's all anybody in the country is talking about in their daily lives, that's that's a bad thing. On the stock market issue, I mean, there's a lot of people right now looking at their 401ks and the and the college savings plans they have for their children, and and wondering how many more years am I going to have to work? And so, I mean, it, it it paints an ugly picture for the party in power. Now, stock markets go up and down, and and uh, obviously we we had dips and we've had we've had rises, but for Joe Biden to put that on top of the inflationary pressures is a Real tough political pickle. College is going to be free, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> free for somebody. You know the one thing, and this is a from a campaign perspective, and all three of you are veterans of campaigns. Uh, is I, I just find it puzzling that Biden and his uh, speechwriters uh, does keep, he have any keep leaning on this little jingo of of Putin's price hike, right? You know, oh, it's the Putin price hike. And it just it's, and it rolls off the tongue, but it's it just seems it just rings so hollow. It's at the same time that he's saying this is the best economy ever because we've created so many jobs since since Biden took over. They're saying all these things that I don't know who believes them. And if if the people inside the White House have believed them or believe that what they're selling, that's a real problem. Where you get in trouble, we've talked about this before. Where you get in trouble in politics is when you try to convince people of something that they're just not experiencing in their right. daily lives. And so to go out on TV and say, well, my, my policies have made inflation better. My policies have created the best economy we've ever experienced. This is What are you all complaining about? This is the best it's ever been. And yet people in their daily lives just aren't having that experience. It's credibility draining for a politician 
to pee on your head and tell you it's raining. And then he's out there saying, well, the president you know, can't do anything more about inflation. He's doing everything he can. The Fed has to deal with it. Or it's really just those greedy gas companies, those greedy meat packing companies that are making prices go up. Um, I'm fine. I, the problem, the problem, I sent a letter. I'm fine. The problem's with everybody else. Right. And now he's going to go to Saudi Arabia to beg that they fix it for him. We're a long way from the buck stops here. Right. I mean, remember, one of one of the, the sort of the, the pillars of the Biden campaign was, I'll take responsibility, you know, for everything. And then the, the buck stops. I mean, I mean, this guy blames everything. And but yells. Every, and yells. Why does it? And, 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 and on top of that, I mean, we're all communicators here, but the Biden people perpetually believe they have a communications problem. If we just mm-hmm. talk a little more or a little louder... This would all be solved. They've never stopped to ask themselves, maybe we actually have a policy problem. And the American people have decided they do, and this is the great disconnect. We've all had those conversations with people it's that, that think they have to keep explaining something to us because it's not that it's that they're wrong. It's that you just don't understand. Right? Yeah, you're an yeah. idiot. So let me explain it a little <laughs> One louder. One more time. That's like, what people me, want. Yeah, <laughs> let me speak slowly and more loudly. Is there any – and Kevin just brought it up. What What is the, uh, the, the political implications of – Going back on the, the the stance about Saudi Arabia, and this is a, you know a, what what was the what, how do you refer to it again? Pariah. 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 Well, the implications the are Khashoggi. it's it's his hypocrisy, right? I mean, to say they're par- I'm gonna I'm gonna turn them into a pariah state, and now he's going over there to beg. Right. Uh, at the same time, you know he he's trying to stifle uh, domestic energy production, and he's begging a pariah state. His words, not mine. He's begging Venezuela. He's trying to do deals with Iran. I mean, to, to the average American person, it sounds crazy. Like, wait a minute. You're out here begging the worst regimes in the world, people you were calling pariah when we can't even get the Keystone Pipeline built. I mean, to the average American, it's hypocritical. But it's also just, I mean, it's just going to sound like incompetence. And then you have John Kerry saying, you know, the number one thing that we don't need to do is drill. Speaking of, we have John Kerry right here. Oh, and energy security worry is driving a lot of the thoughts now about, oh, we need more drilling of gas. We need more drilling of this. We need to go back to coal. No, we don't. Mm. We absolutely don't. And we have to prevent a false narrative from entering into this or, again, uh, pun intended, we are cooked. And then the very next day after John Kerry said that, Joe Biden said, well, I mean, the, uh, the energy companies need to produce more and take less profits. So you've got the climate guy saying, no, 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 we have to produce less. And then you got the president on a different message while blaming, you know, for-profit companies for making a profit. The incongruity of policy communications on this, on health, across the spectrum in this administration has gotten them in serious trouble. Where's Nina Jankowitz in the misinformation board? <laughs> <laughs> Fire. Unfortunately, she she stepped Golly, down. Oh, I, mean, I, I sure wish she were still here. To she's write, uh, writing she, a song about this. She could this. have a jaunty tune spun up in no time. <laughs> That's right. We can hire the entire <laughs> Disney songwriting team to take care of that. Of course, now and, and this is the, the part where I've, I've been very focused on energy this past week and my, my day job working with uh, some electric co-ops and, and the... The concern, of course, here that he's talking about is like we can't go back to coal. The reason why the National Energy Regulatory Commission issued a warning last month about the energy grid and about the possibility of rolling blackouts in some parts of the country is precisely because the most reliable, dependable forms of energy have those are the ones that have been targeted to be taken offline. And and then we're saying and then we're looking at each other now and going, Why is this happening? or what can we do? Are you need to conserve? rather than understanding that, you know, policies have consequences. Remember, to these guys, to the John Kerry's of the world and the climate, you know, cultists and the Biden administration, 
to them, this is all part of the plan. High gas prices is part of the plan. Rolling blackouts because of you know the coal grid issue that you just raised, it's all part of the plan. This right. is all part of their plan to deliver so much pain to the American people as we transition. We're a generation at least away from what they want to do. It's part of the plan. It's part of the plan. Oh, don't worry. This Debbie, is not a bug. It's a feature. Debbie Stabenow got in her electric car and drove all the way to Washington, just drove past every gas station. She doesn't okay. care. It's part of the plan. I just wish that John Kerry would transition away from using his private airplane to get <laughs> to places and actually... His fossil-fueled private airplane. Actually embrace his own personal mission that he has. His airplane runs on, on unicorn flagellation. You didn't know that? <laughs> oh, That's bummer. <laughs> John Kennedy would say unicorn urine. Unicorn urine. He would say that. That's exactly right. Scott, we also heard you this past week on CNN uh, coming to some agreement uh, with some of your uh, the, the other commentators of other political stripes uh, about coming together to say let's let's all talk against political violence. We did have a panel the other night. Uh, Laura Coates was hosting uh, the nine o'clock show, and I was on with Casey Hunt and Michelle Cottle from the New York Times editorial board. And we had a, l- a really good conversation about the rise of political violence. And I was glad that my colleague, uh, who I, d- I didn't really know, Miss Cottle was was saying we have to decry political violence across the spectrum. Of course. Not everybody on the left is doing this. Right. Oh, no. And Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats delayed passing the security bill for Supreme Court justices, even in the face of an attempted assassination of Brett Kavanaugh. There are some on the left who are coddling those who want to commit violence over abortion or what have you. It's wrong. It's bad. And if you're going to go out and decry violence correctly that happened on January 6th, you have to decry the same kind of violence and intended violence that's going to come from the left over the Dobbs case or anything else. And, and you know, someone you all interviewed a few weeks ago, Caroline Downey with the National mm-hmm. Review, she's she's on this beat for uh, them, writing about this uh, pro-abortion group, and she calls them a pro-abortion terrorist group called Jane's Revenge, taking credit, taking pride in the fact that they have firebombed a pro-life pregnancy center today, saying, through attacking we find joy. That is what this group has said. What is the difference between, I'm glad you brought this up. I was, what is the difference between this group and say the Proud Boys? I mean, they're they're out arresting the Proud Boys in Idaho for their intent to terrorize a, you know, a a pride festival out there and rounding up those guys and because they were thinking they were intending to, to cause violence and mayhem. What's the difference? Where is the Department of Justice? Where is Merrick Garland? Where are all the people who want to round up the domestic terrorists we've been hearing so much about because these people right here are saying it out loud, and yet there seems to be no action. This new communique from folks who say they're with Jane's Revenge basically say it's open season on pro-life clinics. They claim responsibility for attacks in Madison, Wisconsin, Fort Collins, Colorado, Risertown, Massachusetts, Olympia, Washington. I won't read them all. There's probably a dozen more. If, 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 the, if the shoes were on the other feet, if there was a group of people out there saying we're going to attack the last remaining abortion clinics in America and the pro-life movement is on the mark. Right now, I mean, the people defenestrating and self-immolating in the Biden administration, I mean, it would be 24-7. It would be the only thing being covered. Right. You'd have FBI everywhere. And by the way, and rightfully so, because we cannot permit people to use violence and intimidation to enact their policy desires. We cannot allow it. Let's remember what's happening at these centers. These are places women go to get ultrasounds, to get mammograms, to get vital health care. 
who is anti-woman in this situation? The people who are offering these services often to women who can't find those same things elsewhere or the people who are literally burning those places to the ground? So you have the director of one of this, uh, the clinics called Compass Care who was interviewed by uh, Randy Kay, an investigative reporter with CNN. I, 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 I clipped this, and Jared's going to help me with this here, just because there seems to be a disconnect even of uh, the, the questioning of the director, who is the victim in this case of this firebombing, is being basically uh, challenged to say, prove it. Treated as a hostile witness. What's on the video surveillance? I have not personally reviewed the, the, uh, the video tapes. Do you have any proof from law enforcement that it was Jane's revenge? Any confirmation? Law enforcement is, uh, by, by, virtue, by virtue of the nature of terrorism, uh, that it's difficult to kind of hone in on the cells. But just to be clear, at this point, you don't have any answers confirmed on who exactly did this to your facility? If we did, they'd be arrested. Did you hear specifically from anyone who said they were Jane's Revenge or part of Jane's Revenge? I can't comment on that right now, um, lest I don't want to interfere with the investigation. So there's Randy Kay and CNN and the report the other day, and not to just call it one reporter, but there doesn't seem to be a disconnect in terms of, it's one thing, I guess what I'm thinking is this. First of all, anyone who 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 has ever firebombed or attacked or hurt anyone, uh, you know, in in the in the interest of quote unquote being pro life. In other words, who, who an abortion clinic that is also it's criminal and it's and it's reprehensible and you should not hurt other people. You should not firebomb places that you disagree with. There, there are courts. There are ways that we're going about this now in a responsible way to make your point. So, but I'm saying is. You better believe if there was a firebombing, and there have been, unfortunately, of an abortion clinic in the past, this would not be the treatment no. of the victim in that case. There, there's a lot of people out there who are trying to both sides this. Like, well, we don't know who's committing these. We know exactly who is. I mean, the pro-lifers aren't out attacking the pro-life well, clinics. The, the, the intimation I mean, here is that you, unless you prove that it was a terrorist act, you're burning down your own clinic to get sympathy points. Yeah. That's the that's the inference. I mean, in this in this particular case, in all these cases, we have a group out there claiming credit for all this. I, look, there's no mystery in what's going on here. And by the way, this comes on top of the fact that the Department of Homeland Security has said, we are tracking a number of different threats to the Supreme Court itself, people who intend to burn down the court, attack the justices, attack the clerks, murder people. There is a whole wall of people out there who've taken their cues from Chuck Schumer You'll reap the whirlwind. You'll pay the price. You don't know the forces you've unleashed. If you believe that Donald Trump's words on January 6th or to the Proud Boys, stand back and step back, if you believe those were prompts to violence, then by definition, you have to believe that Chuck Schumer's words and the words of other Democrats were also prompts to violence, which are now coming true. I'm very concerned about what's going to happen. Right now, this is June 15th. Uh, the Supreme Court in their release of, of decisions uh, today uh, did not include the Dobb case. It would pre presumably will include that before the session ends at the end of June. It's a, already a violent summer in this country. Yeah. And, the, and emotions are high and people are being, the flames are being fanned. And I am very concerned. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, uh, it's an ugly, I hope, I hope we're wrong. I, I hope I hope we're wrong, but I'm I'm very worried that we're not. And I think Scott made the point. It takes every single person with a microphone or an office to condemn political violence, no matter who 
the victim is, no matter who the culprit is, we should all be able to say that's unacceptable. Yeah, I hope I hope that I hope that it's not as bad as as you. This is the wages of of a complete and total collapse of trust in institutions. When you believe that if I don't get the outcome I want, that it is acceptable for me to resort to violence and intimidation. That that is that is. I mean, you, obviously, you have people on the right who, who came to believe that when they stormed the Capitol. But if you've got people out there who are going to treat a Supreme Court decision this way, right? Um, I mean, people have talked about these issues as almost solely like it only exists on the right. It quite obviously exists on the left. And so I think we have to deal with it as a macro issue of not right and left, but of people who have completely decided to operate outside of our normal institutional bounds. It's not partisan. It's at this point institutionalists versus, candidly, anarchists. It's uh, going to be the end of our uh, podcast this time around. A little scene red herd for the the past week. Any 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 no, no quiz this week from Kevin. But next, you said next time around we're going to get this right. Yes, certainly. Yeah. Okay, all all right. right. Got a week now. By the way, we we are going to be. Uh, you have a couple great interviews coming up, Scott. Uh, before we get to scene red herd uh, on the podcast here, so soon to be heard. Yep, soon to be heard on the podcast will be Mark Paoletta, friend of the pod. Uh, he's a, a big conservative lawyer in Washington. He has just released a book about uh, Clarence Thomas. He's very close to Justice Thomas, and uh, we're going to have that for you. And also a, a former speechwriter of Joe Biden, who I met on a recent uh, trip to Washington named uh, Jeffrey Nussbaum, who's written a book called Undelivered. And he's kind of a student of political speechwriting, and he has gone through and picked out some of the most important yet undelivered speeches in political history, including things like the speech that JFK never got to give in Dallas the day he was assassinated. Uh, so it's a fast. I've been reading his book since I picked it up from him a few weeks ago. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have him on as well. I don't know. As, as, as we're all students of history here. I think I think some of these uh, uh, vignettes are, are really fascinating. It didn't used to be known as well, but then in, in recent years, certainly as we passed the uh, the anniversary of a week or so ago of uh, D Day, of of the letter uh, that, that Dwight Eisenhower wrote, taking a full accountability for the failure of Operation Overlord, if, if in fact it had gone that way. And speaking of uh, World War II history, the thing I am actually uh, reading right now, I just, I'm just i getting into The Splendid and the Vile, a book by Eric Larson, a saga of Churchill, family, and the defi- and, and defiance during the Blitz of London. And uh, I'm a few chapters in, and it's cool. fantastic. Are you reading, reading, or are you listening, reading? Audible. I'm Audible. on my Audible. And, it, and by the way, the narrator is like this, it's like the most perfect British narrator <laughs> of all time. It's, it's amazing. So I've got two things. One, um, they, they kind of tie together, but uh, the American Conservative uh, online publication posted an article today, uh, which are the principles of this national conservative movement. I don't know if anyone's been following that, but it's like 10 principles of this new movement trying to pull together an intellectual coalition for the, the right going forward. It's pretty good. Highly recommend people read it. Published by the Edmund Burke Foundation. If you know anything about me. You know, I love Big Edmund Burke. Big Edmund Burke guy. Not a big fan of Thomas Paine. Edmund Burke, he's the man. Uh, but I'm also reading a book by uh, one of the signatories of that list, uh, Joshua Mitchell, and it's called American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. And it's really interesting, and so I highly recommend people pick it up. Fantastic. Kevin? Uh, I saw a major milestone in human history today uh, that is most important for you, Joe. Uh, today, June yes. 15th, yes. they officially shut down Internet Explorer. 
and I have that no idea so how you're going to get online from now on. That is this, so mean. This means nothing to him. He's still using Netscape. <laughs> <laughs> what is the problem with that? <laughs> Actually, I did have shed a little tear when I saw the E. Yeah. I think I still have it on a couple of my old laptops. I'm sure, you, home, yeah. So. It, it, it's officially gone and uh, to a better place. I know a guy in Washington who, for years, uh, I mean, like very recently, was using. He still had like an Earthlink email address, <laughs> and I mean, the teasing. Some people cling to the old ways, right? You know, I'm just saying. It's Did you ever reliable. have CompuServe? No, didn't have. I had AOL. Yeah. I mean, I bought a Gateway computer in the in the, the uh, cow box. In, in the cow box. I had one of those in yeah. college. You yeah. know, and 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 did that whole thing and signed on to AOL. I don't have the sound. I can't do the sound effect, but anyway. Beep, remember when you used to get the CD in the mail? <laughs> and it was like install this CD and you get a hundred hours of internet or whatever. It's like incredible. you've got mail. Yeah. We're, we're gonna have to explain to a young, younger generation that Netflix used to come in the mail. It did. It <laughs> did you, did what you is that? the mail? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, a little scene I heard. I just had to mention this from uh, from the Bronx, uh, New York, where uh, a court of appeals in a very closely watched verdict uh, declared that Happy the elephant is not a human. You know, in California, they had they had declared this that is a big this is a big discussion. Point. It is that that bees are fish. They declared that in <laughs> California. You know about that. No. So they did, because for purposes of protection for endangered species, they declared that bees are fish. And now in, but in New York, they have, they have somewhat countered all that by saying that happy is non-human. Because who is, who is this elephant? Th- there was, there was, a, there was, you need to explain the backstory here. Please. People, no, you need to explain the backstory here about people's declaring that happy the elephant was a person. That's right. A person, and, and, and had personhood. Right. Deserving of proper care and compassion as a person, that way they could fight for Happy to be released from the zoo. So let me get this straight: babies who are minutes from being delivered are not people. This yep. elephant is yep. people. All right, go on. They, you, you and now California has reversed their position. Is that what you're saying? Is that they've declared that the elephant is not? No, a no, human? no, no. I'm saying that no. This is New York, and in California is where they declared the bees are fish. In New York is where the court you of could appeals. see how I could get lost. There. Oh, little <laughs> my, my, I was trying to. My my browser is very slow. <laughs> but elephants <laughs> elephants are not bees. Elephants are not bees. Okay. If nice you follow talking, that. Good nice for you. talking to you all. It's so nice. <laughs> Sean is purposefully conflating. And I know you are. I'm not purposely conflating. <laughs> you are. Purposely I would never conflating. do that. Stuff is whatever we want it to be. It's my takeaway. None of this was on purpose. <laughs> it's time for us to wrap it up. We appreciate everyone joining us on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold for Kevin Grout, Sean Southerd, Jared Crawford, and Scott Jennings. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.